You know, as I think about it, sometimes we go through the motions of being spiritual, don't we? We come to worship, we engage with the music, we offer some prayers, we find, hope to find that magical key that will make us feel a little bit better for the coming week and maybe a little bit more holy, a little bit more peaceful. But inside, I'm also well aware that some of us are, um, continue to feel very empty. Down deep, we hunger and thirst for something that will sustain us through all the crazy times in our life. Our society today continues to chase after things that uh, disappoint us, that hurt us, often um, looks past the very thing that will heal our lives. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the manna from heaven. I am the one who was sent to feed you and sustain you. So today we're going to be celebrating Holy Communion and um, we'll get to participate uh, with the bread of life. So I pray that this time of worship this morning might be a time when we stop running after those things which no longer have the power to satisfy us, but allow the Creator God to be the one who quenches our thirst and nourishes our spirit as we worship Him in this time together. Pray with me. God, along this path of life, we search continually for signs to point us in a positive direction, and you've given us a sign which points us to healing and to hope, and it's Jesus, the bread of life. We don't have to hunger and thirst after things that cannot sustain us, so instead we can be fed and nourished by Christ himself. So open our hearts today in gratitude for all the wondrous things that you have done for us, and open our spirits to hear your words of hope for us today, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I had the opportunity to consult with a fairly large downtown church in a good-sized city uh, along Lake Huron, and this congregation is really proud of their heritage in their church, but struggling now as a congregation to survive. And I'm more and more convinced that growing a church is uh, a vital church is not primarily about the things that we do week in and week out. It's always about God's work in our lives as a congregation. And that's always a challenging task to be sure. We know that a church without vision or vitality has little missional engagement in the community and that was certainly true for this church. I see it every week uh, in churches that I uh, work, get to work with. But our passion and our vision here at Redeemer is to help congregations grow to connect people with the God who can transform not only our individual lives, but our churches into healthy and active bodies of believers. And my goal always is to help people grow in their faith and actually put that faith into practice on a daily basis. We find ourselves in a day and age when congregations of all sizes um, are sometimes just hanging on, sometimes losing ground, um, uh, rather than uh, being healthy and doing well. We live in a turbulent culture that is changing rapidly, and our challenge is always to bless the people and the programs of a congregation's past, yes, and even the present, but yet help to discern God's future for a, rap, in a, for a church in a rapidly changing culture. Why am I telling you all that? You'll get an idea as we uh, go through the message today and toward the end uh, to understand the mission for which Jesus came into this world and how that becomes part of our mission as well. We're continuing our teaching series today called Changed, which has been part of all summer here at Redeemer, and it's really all about what happens to people 
like us when we encounter Jesus Christ and our life is radically changed. And if you have your Bibles today and want to follow along, uh, we're in Luke's Gospel, the 19th chapter, the first 10 verses, and we're going to share some five uh, powerful lessons that applied not only in the time of this story in Luke's Gospel, but apply in the time in which we live as well. Today we also, as I said, share in Holy Communion in just a bit. So thank you for being here and being part of it. Uh, Pray with me, will you? God, we trust in your power to create and to sustain and to enable us, but we could not trust if we did not know that you are always near us. So be with us again today as we worship here. We uh, help us not to check our minds and our hearts at the door, but enable us to bring all that we are to you so that we might experience your touch in every area of our life. And we pray this because of and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The New Testament story of Zacchaeus is a well-known story, and this morning uh, what I would like to do is take this familiar Bible story, which many of us have heard since we were children, and draw five lessons from it that not only applied at the time of Zacchaeus, but apply to us today. And the first lesson is this, money can't buy happiness. Verses 1 and 2 introduce us to the circumstances of this story. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. Now, this encounter takes place near the end of Jesus' ministry. He is only days from Jerusalem and from crucifixion. He he has been to uh, Jericho many times, and however, this time he has come for the final time. Jericho was one of the most important cities in ancient Israel. Located in the tropical plain about six miles west of the Jordan River, it was a center of trade, of commerce, of business, of industry, and of agriculture. It had been an important city for many generations. In fact, well before the time of Christ, the Romans knew and valued the city. Mark Anthony once gave the city of Jericho to Cleopatra as a gift. She promptly turned around and sold it for money. King Herod built a hippodrome there, also a summer palace. The city of Jericho was known for two things above everything else. It was known for the balsam, which was grown there and sold throughout the ancient Near East. It's also known for the growing and harvesting and production of dates from the date palm trees. They were sold and shipped to all the countries around Israel. On another note, there was a major road which ran north and south through Jericho. And if you were coming along the western side of the Jordan River or from the city of Damascus or from the area near the Dead Sea and wanted to go to Jerusalem, you would inevitably have to go through Jericho. Now, what all that means is this. Jericho in Jesus' day was a good place to be because if you knew what you were doing, you could make a lot of money there. If you had a good idea and were willing to work hard and your idea became a reality, it was a profitable place to set up shop. So Jesus had come to Jericho on a sunny day in March on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. He is well known there. Everybody either hates him or loves him, but after three years, three and a half years of ministry, no one could ignore him. 
And when the word begins to spread that this strange miracle-working rabbi from Galilee has come to Jericho again, people by the hundreds, maybe even by the thousands, flock down those narrow dirt streets to meet Jesus as he enters the city. They want to talk with him. They want to hear him tell stories, maybe even work a miracle for them. Jesus has come to Jericho and received the greatest of all possible fanfare. Everybody's heard he was coming, everybody including the most hated man in town, Zacchaeus. Verse 2 tells us that he was the chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Luke is telling us that he was wealthy because he was the chief tax collector. Now in those days, the Romans controlled the taxation of of ancient Israel and they set it up this way. They divided Israel into districts. There were three, one in Caesarea, one in Capernaum, and one in Jericho, and they would hire someone to be something of a district commissioner. The person chosen was usually the person who had bid the most for the right to be the head tax collector, and that was Zacchaeus, which means he had a group of people working for him who would collect the taxes. Now, it was a simple fact that in the first century, these tax collectors were greedy extortioners. They were thugs who used pressure and intimidation to extort money from the common people. In fact, the ancient writers tell us that Israel was among the most taxed nation in all of uh, the first century. So Zacchaeus was the guy in charge. Now notice that Zacchaeus has three strikes against him. One, he is a tax collector, and tax collectors were not well-liked people. Uh, Add to that, he was a crook and a cheat, as we'll find out later in the story. And three, he was working for the hated Roman Empire. So we have a crooked tax collector working for the enemy, and they hated his guts. They They couldn't stand the sight of him. He represented everything that was wrong and bad about life as they knew it. And when they saw Zacchaeus coming, the people of Jericho would turn and go the other way. Now, the system worked like this. Rome would would say to a district commissioner like Zacchaeus, we want you to collect taxes of such and such amount and send that amount to us. So Zacchaeus and his employees would set about collecting that amount, but there was one hitch. Most of the district commissioners would collect more than the designated amount, sending the stipulated amount to Rome and putting the rest in their pocket. And as they incurred the wrath, the hatred, and displeasure of everyone in town doing that. Zacchaeus is wealthy, he's powerful, he snaps his fingers and people jump. And even though he seems to have it all, Zacchaeus discovers the hard way that you can be rich and not happy. You can be wealthy and not loved. You can be successful and not satisfied. His money couldn't buy happiness. Lesson number two, there's no shortage of hungry hearts. Zacchaeus had a problem. Verse three says he tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Now, I don't know how tall he was. We're just told that he was a short man, and Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. So he pushes his way down the street. He tried to stand on his tiptoes, but that didn't help much. He starts pushing. Excuse me, excuse me, I've got to get through. And when people turn around and see it's Zacchaeus, they begin to spit on him and push him away. Do you think they're going to let this tax collector through? Uh, Not on this day or any day. 
And so Zacchaeus, in a show of determination and triumph of ingenuity, sees Jesus in the crowd, making his way down the street. And verse 4 says, so he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Now, a sycamore tree was something like an oak tree with limbs that came down near the ground. So he climbs up into the tree and drapes himself over a limb, and he waits for Jesus to come along. Have you ever asked yourself, what makes... What made Zacchaeus want to see Jesus? You know, he had it all. He had money, he had power, he had everything that money could buy, but he still, for some reason, wanted to see Jesus. Why was, what was it that made Zacchaeus want to see him? He had heard about Jesus, and I'm sure he was curious about this man from Galilee, but why? Why now? Do you suppose Zacchaeus had heard through the tax collector's grapevine about what happened when Jesus met Levi. See, Levi was another tax collector, equally hated, equally despised when Jesus had dinner with him. Jesus said, Levi, why don't you come follow me? By the way, Levi's name was changed when he became a follower of Jesus. Anybody want to guess what the name was? I didn't hear. Matthew, I finally heard it. Yes, thank you. You know, the first service, nobody won that one. Second service, only one. So uh, you guys are doing, I heard it two or three times here. But I still have a lot of work to do, evidently, as a pastor here. That's my, that's my conclusion. But do you suppose Zacchaeus had heard that Jesus had called one of his own colleagues into ministry? Do you think it's possible that Zacchaeus, with all of his money, still had a hole in his heart that made him you know, so desperate that he would do anything to see this man? If we ask, who is the least likely person to want to see Jesus? I think Zacchaeus would be on top of that list. But when Jesus comes to town, he sees a man up a tree who's desperate to see him. Sometimes in our effort to share the gospel, you know what? We too get discouraged, don't we? We think our friends and loved ones are never going to listen. We're trying to share our faith with them. We try to share Christ at work or with a friend or with a neighbor. We try to build some bridges to get to that point, but we try to get to know people uh, because we want them to know the Lord as well. But we get discouraged when they don't respond or respond as quickly as we hoped. Sometimes they, we may go months or even years without seeing any response, and we look at them and we conclude that God has just you know, hardened their heart. They're just hardened to the things of God. But I think what this story reminds us is that Zacchaeus, uh, in the story of Zacchaeus reminds us not to jump to those hasty conclusions. If you, if you had looked on the outside at Zacchaeus, you would have written him off because, you know, society had written him off. But in his heart, the Holy Spirit was continuing to work and waiting for that day when he would meet Jesus. So thank God there are hungry hearts all around us. And just because we don't see the fruit of, that, of our labor, the signs on the outside, doesn't mean that there aren't on the inside friends and loved ones who have a hungry heart to know Jesus. Here's lesson number three. Salvation is a gift. Crowds coming down the street, Jesus is in the middle, there is a great commotion, great excitement. Verse 5 says, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down, I must be your guest, a guest in your home today. How did Jesus know his name? 
I don't totally know the answer to that. Did somebody spot Zacchaeus up there and yell at him that Jesus heard, or had Jesus heard about him some other way? Did Jesus recognize that hungry heart that was waiting for him in the Gospels? We discover that whenever Jesus calls a person by name, something is about to happen. Zacchaeus, you come down because I'm going to your house today. That is grace in action. Verse 6, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. This is a story about what salvation is all about. Zacchaeus is up in a tree. He's interested in Jesus. He's watching, and Jesus comes along, and Jesus stops and calls him by name. And that is a perfect picture of the grace of God. That's where salvation begins. Zacchaeus had nothing with which to recommend himself to God, nothing to deserve an invitation from the master. And Zacchaeus was the absolute worst guy in the city. But that's who Jesus singles out. That's the unmerited grace of God in action. Zacchaeus, come on down. We're going to eat supper together. And the Bible says that Zacchaeus came down and he received Jesus gladly. And that is the human response to the grace of God. That's what salvation is all about. When Jesus speaks our name and we respond, salvation is ours. How do we know when Jesus is calling us? Well, believe me, you'll know it when you hear God's voice speaking to your heart. When we want to leave our life of sin, when we're ready for a change that will make a difference in who we are and how we live, we just have to come to Jesus and Jesus will touch us at our point of need. Lesson number four, making restitution is good for us. When Zacchaeus came down and welcomed Jesus gladly, he not only welcomed Jesus personally, but he said, Jesus, come to my house. I believe that, you know, between verse 6 and 7, they had a meal together. And we pick up the story in verse 7, but the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. He was a big sinner, a person that good Jews would never associate with. And this whole scene has upset the country club crowd in Jericho. They said, why, Jesus, we would have taken you to the uh, the Jericho country club if we'd have known you wanted to eat. We we could have had some ribeyes on the grill. You know, it would have been great. Service is wonderful at the country club. Jesus, why are you messing around with a tax collector? This is the worst guy in town. Now, isn't it true that the Pharisees, the religious back then, and even now, are offended at the people Jesus chooses to be his followers? Isn't it true then as now that some people are offended by the fact that our Lord ate with the worst of sinners? That he wanted to be with them? Zacchaeus had a problem. He had had been a crook for many years. That's how he'd gotten his money. And now Zacchaeus and Jesus are eating together, and people are complaining. They're looking at the old Zacchaeus, and they're judging him by the old standards, and they don't understand why Jesus would want to spend any time with this man. And when we see Zacchaeus, when they saw Zacchaeus, all they saw was the man he used to be. They didn't understand that The man who came down from the tree that day was a brand new Zacchaeus with a brand new life and a brand new set of spiritual values. And if you're Zacchaeus, how do you show 
to the world that you've become a new person by the power of Jesus Christ. How does that change show up? That often happens when people come into the church, maybe from a questionable background. They weren't raised in Sunday school. They didn't come up through the system. When they come into the church, they wonder to themselves, am I really good enough to be here? They feel like they're not worthy to belong. Look at verse 8. Tells us what he did. Zacchaeus stood up after the meal and said to the Lord, Lord, uh, look here. Uh, now I give ha- I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times that amount. By the way, this is the only place in the Bible where Zacchaeus is, is recorded saying anything. But do we understand what he's saying here? I've got a lot of money, and I've just met you, Jesus. But something's changed. And so here and now, Lord, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take half of what I got off the top and I'm going to give it to the poor. He didn't say, I'm going to give a portion of my income to the poor or I'm going to tithe, I'm going to give 10% to the poor. He said, Lord, I'm going to take half of my entire income, my estate, my portfolio, I'm going to give it to the poor. And the other half I'm going to use to pay back anybody that I've ever cheated. And just so they'll know I'm serious about this. I'm going to pay them back four times as much. When he says, I have, if I've cheated anyone, he is admitting to Jesus that he's been a cheat. And he's saying, Lord, anytime I find someone in the future that I cheated, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. And if I've cheated them out of $1,000, I'll pay them $1,000 plus $4,000 on top of that for a total of five. Now that sounds pretty radical to us, doesn't it? but it depends on our point of view. If you're a cheating tax collector and your life has just been revolutionized by Jesus Christ, why wouldn't you do that? The greater question is this. How do we really show that Jesus has changed our life? How do we show the reality of Christ in our life when our life has changed? And the answer for us would be the same as it was for Zacchaeus. Here's the the spiritual principle in this story. The reality of our new life in Jesus Christ will be seen precisely at the point of our old weakness. The reality of our new life in Jesus Christ will be seen at precisely the point of our old weakness. His problem was money. It was greed. It was lust. And therefore, since that was the point of his weakness, that's the point at which his new life had to be demonstrated. Wouldn't do any good for Zacchaeus to say, Lord, I'm not going to curse anymore. Whether he cursed or not, that wasn't his biggest problem. Or, Lord, I'm going to be a nice guy from now on instead of such a jerk. That wasn't his biggest problem. That wasn't his point of greatest weakness. The point of his weakness was his greed for more and more money. And nobody would believe that his life had really changed unless it changed at the point of his weakness. And when we come to Jesus Christ... That same is true for us. If our problem is gossip and if that doesn't change, don't think people aren't going to buy into your Christianity just because you attend church. If gossip is our weakness and that doesn't change, then coming to church isn't going to make any difference at all to the people around us. It's not simply that we have, we're trying to add on something to our past weakness. Real conversion is shown when we change what we used to be, when we change the weak point. If bitterness is our problem, then that's the area that has to change. If a bad temper is our problem, that's the area that has to change. 
If treating people like dirt is our problem, then that's the area that has to change. If being disrespectful to those who are in authority over us is the problem, when we come to Christ, that's the area where the change has to be demonstrated. This is a a tremendously important principle. Notice how Zacchaeus demonstrated the change. He made voluntary resolution. He said, I'm going to give half to the poor. That takes care of the future. When he said, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times. That takes care of the past. His present is okay, but he's taking steps to now take care of the future and the past. This whole idea of restitution seems a little odd to us, but the idea of restitution would not have been unusual to the Jews in Jesus' day. It's only unusual to us because we don't do it enough. The Old Testament discusses the concept many times. For instance, according to Exodus 22, if you stole somebody's sheep, you had to pay them back four times as much. If you stole somebody's oxen, you had to pay them back five times because oxen were good for their hides and fur, but also to pull the plow, so they were more valuable. If you stole certain items, you were required to pay back what you stole plus 20% of the value. In some places, it was double, other places triple, other places four times, some five times. That was standard practice in the Old Testament. You made restitution for what you had done wrong. That's what Zacchaeus was doing here, but only he was doing it voluntarily, not because a judge had told him to do it. There are at least three reasons why restitution is good for us. First of all, it's good because it shows that we are really, really sorry for what we've done. And I'm not just talking about restitution of money or things that we've stolen, but people we've hurt. Our attitudes, our broken relationships, people we've treated like dirt in the past and now want to live for, we want to live for Christ, so we want it to be different. Those bridges are out from the past, and we're going to have to go back and rebuild them. We need to make restitution. It's good because it shows that we're really sorry for what we've done. But secondly, it's good because it makes it easier for the people we've hurt to forgive us. People don't want to hear just pious words from us. They want to see our life changed and demonstrate that changed behavior, what better example than to make amends for the things we've said and done to the people we've hurt. If we make restitution, it also makes us much less likely to make the same mistake. Again, because it has cost us something. Restitution always costs us. We have to humble ourselves. We have to admit our wrongdoing. That's not easy, which is why most people don't do it. That's also why it's so good for us. Making restitution once or twice will help us to think twice before we do the same dumb thing again. And that's what Zacchaeus is doing here. At the point of his weakness, he is demonstrating his new life in Christ by voluntarily giving his money away to the poor and making restitution four times over. And if some of you are familiar with the, uh, the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, And you know that millions of people have been helped by following the 12 steps. But I want you to listen to step four. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of your own life. Take a look in the mirror and see yourself as you really are. Step eight. Make a list of all the persons you have harmed and be willing to make amends to them all. Step nine. Make direct amends to such people whenever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. And long before AA came into existence, this is exactly what Zacchaeus is doing. 
In the AA manual, it says, making, in making amends, it is seldom wise to approach the individual who still smarts from our injustice and to announce that we have gone religious. This might be called leading with the chin. Why lay ourselves open to being branded as fanatic or religious bores? If we do this, we may kill a future opportunity to carry a beneficial message, but the person who hears our amends is sure to be impressed by our sincere desire to set right a wrong. He is going to be more interested in a demonstration of goodwill than in talk of spiritual discoveries. See, it's not in what we say. It's in what we do. And don't say it until your life can back it up. We can't talk about our faith, or we can talk about our faith all we want, but unless our faith is backed up by the evidence of a changed life, nobody's going to listen. Lesson number five. Our number one priority. Look at verse 9. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. Now I'll bet that just set the country club crowd in Jericho crazy again. They were offended that Jesus would consider a man like Zacchaeus as a son of Abraham. They thought they had it made, and they had already counted Zacchaeus out. But the truth of the matter is Jesus is saying that a son of Abraham is not someone who has the right birth certificate. A son of Abraham is the one who has the kind of faith that Abraham had. And Zacchaeus had that kind of faith demonstrated by his changed life. Verse 10 then gives us the moral to the whole story. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Why is the church here? It's a lesson to us about why the church is in the world. The Savior came for people like Zacchaeus, and the reason the church exists is to follow Jesus to seek out those who are lost. And it's easy for a lot of good church folks to mutter and complain and say, you know, I'm I'm not sure we want those Zacchaeus types here in our church. I'd rather they go someplace else. And I've heard that. I heard it said again this week at a church where I was. However, if we're not willing to do what Jesus did, we can hardly call ourselves his disciples. If we as a church have decided that only the good and the pure and the righteous and the holy can come into this place, then we're not worthy of the name of Christ. And that's really the challenge, isn't it? To follow Jesus into the world. Let me leave you with this this morning. If Jesus were to come into our area today, where would we find him? I seriously doubt that we would find him hanging out in our churches. It's not where he was 2,000 years ago. I think we'd find him looking for the homeless and the hungry and the hurting and people who are lost. That's where Jesus would be, I'm convinced, if he came today. And as long as the church stays in the church, We're never going to understand Jesus' mission. If a congregation wants to follow Jesus, we have to go where Jesus is, and that is out into the world. We need to take seriously the challenge of going from here to showing the world that Jesus Christ really has made a difference in our life. And some of us this morning maybe need to make that moral inventory of where we really stand before God. 
Or maybe we need to make the list of people we've hurt and offended. Or maybe we need to resolve before God that as far as possible, uh, we're going to make things right with the people we've hurt so badly. You see, until we do that, we're not going to get very far in our Christian life. It's just that basic. However, when we do, we will be providing the world around us living proof of two things. Living proof of why Jesus came into this world in the first place and living proof of the difference that Jesus Christ can make when he comes into our life. So God, help us to be that living proof wherever we are this week. Amen.